The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Jeff Mills, and Steve Grasso. Ahead on Fast, another wild day in Wall Street. Red, ta- red ruled the tape and all the major averages fell. We dive into one safe harbor from the storm, the healthcare trade, the names, the moves, and where this group could go from here straight ahead. Plus, is the consumer's urge to splurge slowing down? From electronics to restaurants to shoes to even coffee, we are seeing big stock drops this week. What the charts are telling us. And later, betting on the EV boom, a boom that will need lots and lots of lithium. We will talk to the CEO of Lithium Americas about the challenges ahead as we slide into the electric movement. But we start off with a tech-led sell-off on Wall Street. The Nasdaq closing off its lows of the day, but still dropping more than 2% to its lowest close in two weeks. And check out the losses in the biggest names on Wall Street. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Alphabet, Meta, losing a combined $316 billion in market cap today alone. The move comes as the Fed lays out its plan to draw down its balance sheet. Let's get more on the headlines out of the central bank with Steve Leisman, who is here on set with us tonight. Nice. You're our first reporter guest mm-hmm. on set for uh, Fast Money since the pandemic. The right guy so. the right time. <laughs> but there were no party hats, I would like to remark. Or That's dancing later. bears. Or dancing bears or those, oh. uh, you know, uh, kazoo things. Anyway. Uh, The Federal Reserve in the minutes to its March meeting uh, said its members had generally agreed to a plan to reduce its $9 trillion balance sheet that was somewhat more aggressive than markets had been anticipating. Here's the plan, $95 billion total caps per month. That's the most they'll let run off, including a $65 billion cap on treasuries, $35 billion on mortgage, with those levels reached in three months. So they'll ramp up to those caps. Mortgage-backed security sales are possible, the Fed said, after the runoff is, quote, well underway. The plan has to be formally adopted at the May meeting. The minutes also said Fed officials were ready to hike 50 basis points at the March meeting, but they were stopped by uncertainty over Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the economic fallout. But that's unlikely to be true at the May meeting. Check out this from the minutes, quote, many participants noted that one or more 50 basis point increase in the target range could be appropriate at future meetings, particularly if inflation pressures remain elevated or intensified altogether. Put it all together. 50 basis points hike, hikes, 95 billion in asset sales. They point to the Fed undertaking one of the most aggressive tightening cycles, maybe since 1994. Depends a bit on how you count it. Here's the question, whether it will be enough to corral inflation and how much economic growth, employment, and the stock market suffer as a result, Melissa. What did you make of the Bill Dudley opinion piece that appeared on Bloomberg? A little overstated, but but essentially right. I mean, yeah. the Fed needs to tighten financial conditions, and it can get it from two or three places, right? You can get it from the bond market, get it from the stock market, and get it from a decline in consumer demand. Those are three ways that it can tighten uh, financial, financial conditions. And um, the market given where we've been and where we are now, has held up relatively well, I think. You know, uh, the S&P, I know that that understates what's happened, the the disaster in a bunch of individual names, but in aggregate, it's been not too bad. 
Yeah, it seems like that helped feed into the market losses. It, it, well, you add the, the Bill Dudley op-ed, and folks, uh, effectively what it was, to, to, to give a paraphrase, is that the Fed targets uh, financial conditions often through the stock market. You know, we don't have in our country uh, necessarily a lot of variability on interest rates where people are tied in. They tend to be locked in. The place where you have the most sensitivity in consumer demand tends to be, and the Fed targets the, 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 the balance sheet at home and stocks. And so the point was, actually, the Fed needs to do some damage here. And this is pretty extraordinary. But it's not when you consider it some of the worst times of financial conditions and when the consumer has been uh, the most you know, distressed, they've targeted you know, basically 10 and 10 is what I remember after the financial crisis where they were saying, let's get to 10 percent, below 10 percent unemployment and let's get to 10,000 on the Dow. And I mean, think we're in a very different place here, but it's not surprising. And the only thing I would add about the minutes, um, Steve points out that the balance sheet was really the only thing that was different. What's different is that in the last couple of days, uh, or at least since that meeting, the number of ways different Fed governors have tried to use the word expedite um, in sentences and that this 50 is a foregone conclusion to me for May and probably June at this point. Do you think that there has been a noted change in, in Fed speak to a, hawk, a more hawkish tilt, or is it that the markets haven't been paying attention to the nuances of Fed speak prior yeah. and so are only now so, alerted to how hawkish the Fed has been? Before Brainerd spoke, the story I was going to do for Wednesday was, was the market paying attention. And I will tell you that over three surveys, beginning in December or January, I can't remember when we, we started, but we did three Fed surveys, they all pointed to a 75 to $85 billion runoff. If you weren't paying attention, it's like the, the Fed went from zero to 95 in an instant. If you were paying attention, the Fed went from 75 to 95. Mm -hmm. So I, I think part of the market has priced this in. I think there are some loose ends that the market doesn't quite know about. This idea of selling mortgage-backed securities. Not easy. Mm -hmm. There's a technical aspect to this where the Fed is counting on a certain runoff that has to do with people prepaying. Mm -hmm. If they don't get there, the question is, does the Fed en end up selling mortgages? That's going to put a lot of pressure on the market. Plus, nobody really quite knows the combination of what big rate hikes and QT mean. But the, the mm -hmm. trick to that is that, you know, to prepay, why would you prepay you wouldn't. a low end rate? Exactly. You so that's, that's the connection. That's there. the connection. That's, that's why. Connection. So the Fed is going to have trouble running off that right. $35 billion. Yeah. Karen, you make the yeah. point that, that actually some parts of the stock market have felt it. They right. have been feeling it, and the Fed yeah. has done its damage. Yes. I mean, you know, we talk all the time about the IGV, the high flyer kind of names. And I just did a chart just today, the IGV versus the FANG, which, uh, so that's not, that's not the most value out there. Um, and if you look at those two, you can see that from the point where the Fed, maybe you're not going to look at those two. But anyway, it's big chart, <laughs> Keep talking. very different graphs. And what it shows is. Do the air well, chart, Karen. Okay, so the IGV is like this, way <laughs> it's down. Like and the other air chart right there. Nice job. I like the air chart. Excellent. Okay. So you can see the fangs, even though they're down, they're down modestly versus the IGV, which at its bottom was down 32%. That is a very big correction. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean they were cheap there. But I mean, so I feel like there's this sort of rolling correction that's gone through the market and I have to be long. So it's, uh, you know, I can't time the market, which is good. That, so I don't have to because I just have to be long. But I think a lot of it's in there already. Just to get to your point, which I thought I heard you say earlier today, if you weren't, you know, you haven't been paying attention, if you were shocked by what happened today. Do you think that's why they brought out Brainerd, who was, or I think of as the most dovish, yeah. to really like, like if she's saying the this, shock, she's hawk. the yes. shock factor. If so that's a hawk, I've, there's no doves left. I don't think uh, Brainerd went from dove to hawk overnight. She's 
progressed over time, along with the entire board. And by the way, I think I also said this earlier, um, the monetary policy dove is right now an endangered species. You read those minutes, there is nobody who wants to hold this back. And to Tim's point, they've used the word expeditious and expeditiously. That's the new yeah, word. No, That's what they're going to be the, doing. It's the new transitory. Um, I think the new, what's happening now is that Brainerd is going to be the vice chair. The vice chair, and I think we all need to get used to this. It's probably maybe worth spending a second on it, which is the vice chair is the policy pulling guard for the chair. They're going to come out. They're going to lead the way. And this is what Clarita did for Powell. And now Brandon, I think they rolled her out because perhaps the um, uh, expectations in the market that wasn't paying attention, the Fed got a feel for that. They needed to socialize the more aggressive numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can I ask the guest another question? Uh, He's still I, here. I want to get in, I no, want to get in our, our, our fellow Send traders email, here okay. because um, I do want to get the trade off of all of this. And from what Steve Leesman is, is saying and from what we, we know of where various Fed officials stand, including former Fed officials, it seems, Jeff, that there is no reason to be in the markets right now unless you believe that full impact has a negative impact has been inflicted on the overall average and that the markets have fully priced in all of this tightening as opposed to pockets of the market, which well, Karen's pointing out. Yeah, and I think that's very true. But like Karen, we have to be long and we are long. So it's a matter of trying to pick our spots and figure out where the market's going from here. But I do think generally speaking, I tweeted this out yesterday, but what I basically said was, do these five, six, seven percent jerks back and forth and all these individual names, is that indicative of a healthy rally or is it stocks sort of flailing around amid what would generally be an oversold bounce. So if you are in and out of the market, I think it's important to see things like the triple Qs and semis and Microsoft and Google and sort of go down the list there, hold above the 200-day moving average because we attempted to break above it. But I think that's now very much in question. Then you also have important stocks like Nike and Disney, you know, region the consumer. There's been a lot of technical damage there done as well. And they're not necessarily rallying from a position of strength. And I think maybe the best example of all of this is probably the ARC complex where you had a 30% furious rally back up to the downward sloping 50 day, but then like a blink of an eye, you're all of a sudden back down 15% again. So I do get concerned overall about the direction of the market and the rally that we've been experiencing. But what I will say to my original point about being long, we are using this weakness we're now experiencing into this hawkish Fed talk to start to rotate out of some of these cyclical names into some of these higher quality growth names, because as the economy slows down, like I've been saying, I think that's where you're going to get your performance between, say, now and the end of the year and probably into next year. Yeah. Um, okay. So question marks over banks, question marks over semis, question marks over transport, Steve. Today, the S&P 500 closed below the 200-day moving average. Um, and, and so where are we here, Steve? And do you go for that secular growth that comes from let's say, a big cap technology uh, stock to play its, quote unquote, safe. So, the, so I, you know, those big cap technology stocks, yes, they're the safe or safer bet within the marketplace. They're the last ones to be sold off, the first ones to be bought back off the bottom. But to Jeff's point, did we see the sell off? Have we seen it already or was this just a little bit of a blip? It's probably a blip because you were having a conversation with Steve Leisman 75 billion and 95 billion, that's a huge difference for traders. What does it mean for, is it a 25 basis point per, uh, per month? What does that add to the cuts? Is that another cut? Do, do traders even know what that? So if we're looking at seven to eight cuts, uh, uh, rate, or hikes per year, is that 10? 
Is it 12? No one knows how to gauge it or aggregate those hikes. So it's impossible to step in and say, I'm willing to buy the bottom just yet. But the large cap tech stocks, that's where I would be when the bottom is hit. All right. Um, Steve Leesman, our thanks to you. Stop by more often. Don't be a stranger. our candy bag once again when you stop by. <laughs> it would be my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. One of the worries this week from our traders has been the credit market, what the LQD, the corporate bond ETF, is telling us. But our next guest believes some of those worries are a little bit overdone here. Let's bring in BondClick CEO Chris White. His clients include major corporate bond dealers. Um, Chris, why are we putting too much into what these ETFs look like? First of all, it's great to be back. And I think that, you know, focus on the ETF really articulates a larger issue with the corporate bond market is that there's such limited information to really understand that what's going on that we often put a lot of weight on the only things that seem to be transparent, which are corporate bond ETFs. So just looking at the news from the corporate bond ETF market, it looks like there are outflows and it looks like the ETFs are down. So you would assume that the overall market is suffering. But there are some other numbers that are contradicting that to contradicting that point. Hey, Chris, uh, thanks for joining us. I, I read your notes. You, you feel that current credit conditions are actually still pretty constructive. Um, but you've, you've highlighted the fact that companies with the levered balance sheets, when, it times, when it's time to come back to the market and refund, are going to face significantly different funding uh, costs. Talk about that. And does anyone stand out in your mind here? Well, I think that's like the main theme. And, and I've talked about it before on the show. It's just you know, uh, the, the bond market itself has to function well, not only for end investors, but it really needs to function well for many of the corporations who've been relying on debt capital to fund their operations, especially during uh, the pandemic. And we saw record borrowing in 2020 and 2021. We're still seeing borrowing and deals getting done um, in 2022. However, I think what everybody needs to pay attention to is whether or not the market itself uh, starts to lock up where you don't see a lot of buying and selling and you're seeing uh, and you're seeing the values of corporate bonds gap down. That would indicate that any of the companies out there that are highly levered that have uh, a bunch of bonds coming due within the next 18 months are really going to struggle with refinancing at rates that are nowhere near what they've been used to. It's Karen. Let me just um, I think you, I, we, I saw in the notes that and you said the LQD, the HYG aren't in themselves necessarily indicators, but what are the kinds of things you said if the market seizes up, do you see is it something like broken deals or deals that they just can't get done that they try to do and then need to pull them? We haven't seen any sure. of that yet. Are you expecting that? Yeah, we haven't seen any of that. And I think the last time I was on the AMC deal was coming and we were speculating as to how that would be treated in the marketplace. And I think what we talked about is like how much cash is on the sidelines right now looking at these new yields and saying, hey, that's a pretty good deal for us. We're a pension fund. We're an insurance company that's really been yield starved. For, for several years now. So when, when we see a deal like AMC coming, even though it is obviously a, a name with shakier prospects, we're going to step in. And I believe that deal was a few times oversubscribed. They even sized it up from a half a billion to about a billion dollar deal. So that really tells you that there's, there's still a lot of cash on the sidelines. And so the, the two numbers to really look at to understand um, how healthy is a corporate bond market? One of them is a, a transaction uh, data number that, that we have at BondClick called a customer flow. It's looking at uh, net customer buying versus net customer selling. And actually, since the, the attack of the Ukraine by Russia, we, we've actually seen it be flat in terms of buying and selling, which is pretty normal for conditions. Um, obviously, some sectors have been hit and bonds are being repriced lower. But you, I would be concerned if we were seeing 
net selling and bonds being repriced lower because that would indicate that nobody is out here looking to buy bonds at these yields. And, and that's something that would be quite concerning and would look like March 2020, um, April 2020, when there were some material concerns about the structure of the market. Hey, Chris, when you look at the overall market in your world, how has that changed? Has the Fed had any effect on what you when you just said there's two criteria that you look at? Has the Fed skewed those criteria for you? Have, have you changed anything on your analysis based on the over accommodative state the Fed has had for years? Absolutely. You know, the, the U.S. corporate bond market cannot be decoupled from the Treasury market and from the mortgage market. And even though the Fed did not buy that many bonds directly, U.S. corporate bonds directly, they had been buying, you know, massive amounts of treasuries and mortgages. But those markets are connected in that any fixed income investor is going to look at a bond market that, uh, you know, based on its yield attractiveness. And so when the Fed stops being the buyer of last resort for these markets, which they have been for, you know, almost a decade now, um, it, it really starts to uh, uh, reprice credit or, or, or all fixed income instruments quite aggressively. That's why we're seeing, you know, the five-year treasury now is at, uh, from a yield standpoint, I think is at a four-year high, the 10 years at a three-year high. This is what we should expect, given that I believe uh, a few weeks ago, the Fed ceased all bond buying across uh, mortgages and treasuries as well. That second indicator, and I just wanted to make sure we got to this, is you really have to look at what the dealers are doing in the corporate bond market. I, I think that um, the, the dealers and how active they are um, and the bid offer spreads that they're offering in the marketplace. And I do believe I gave some some data that we have uh, over at Bonclick regarding bid offer spreads. But you want to look at that because that's going to tell you how expensive it is to trade the corporate bond market. If bid offer spreads really widened out, then you're going to that's a really negative uh, indicator in terms of. Uh, what the future holds in terms of a well-functioning corporate bond market. And I say well-functioning because I think what we all can expect is that, yes, fixed income is going to be repriced. Corporate bonds are going to lose value because interest rates are going higher. And especially since the Fed now has to sell out of this $9 trillion position, which I think you could do an entire show on. Um, but for now, um, are people able to trade? And the answer unequivocally is yes, you can trade in this market. And I think that's really important. Can you bring new bonds to this market? Yes, you have been able to do that. That being said, I would really pay attention to how conditions are going forward because mm -hmm. opinions could change in this market and it, it might get really rocky. And the one difference today is that I don't think the Fed's going to step in and be the buyer of last resort like they were in 2020. Yeah. Chris, if we do do that show, we'll certainly call you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Good to see you. Chris White of BondClick. Um, Jeff, I think what what Chris says basically underscores the notion that you got to look at the balance sheet of companies when you're entering this environment and those highly levered ones with, with debt due, it's going to be rough sledding for them. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And I've actually been having a lot of conversations with our fixed income team just in terms of our positioning in the bond markets because we are overweight credit. We're probably going to remain overweight credit, sort of akin to not trying to time the stock market. But the one thing that I think is really important, important that I'll point out is look at high yield spreads. And, and to Chris's point that the market is still functioning very well, they're about as tight as they were during that 2015-2018 tightening cycle. But the question is, when did spreads start to widen? And it was exactly when PMIs peaked and growth started to slow. What's happening right now? PMIs are peaking and growth is starting to slow. So I think high yield spreads in particular have nowhere to go but up from here. 
All right, coming up, bruised buyers are cracks starting to form in the consumer. We're hitting the charts to find out. But first, some signs of life in today's down day. Healthcare, bright spot for investors. So which stocks can bring some healthy returns? The names are next. Fast Money's back into. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Healthcare, a bright spot in today's action. Lilly, AbbVie, Pfizer, and more in the green. The XLV Healthcare ETF climbing more than 1.5%. Karen, you own some names in the sector. Which ones? Yes, I own Lilly, Merck, Pfizer, Bristol Myers, and AbbVie. Hmm. And they all kind of move. I mean, some move a little more than others. We saw Lilly today, I guess, on the back of that Morgan Stanley upgrade. It's just been a nice place to, to be in sort of the, you know, great balance sheets. Dividends, which I'm not there for the dividend, but I don't hold it against him. And low PEs and, I don't know, uh, also the, the tone from uh, Congress used to be anti-Big Pharma, but right. post-pandemic, I think that's a lot different now. So I'm staying with the trade. I think it's been a good place to hide. I, I think it's a great place to hide, and it dovetails our conversation from last block. I mean, these are companies that are going to be uh, that much more bulletproof in a difficult both rate and credit environment. I, I would just look at, there, there are some that are just starting to break out. Like a Merck has been in a two-year two sideways pattern and, and a stock that really has been frustrating. I'm long Merck. I'm also long much of the sector. Uh, but, I, you know, they just gave a pharma pipeline uh, update. And, and I think if you listen to that, you got very excited about some of the growth dynamics of this company that trades at 17 times trailing. But again, somewhere breaking out here uh, was, was, you know, just getting through kind of the, the mid 80s um, you know, two years ago. So uh, it, I, I think this is where you want to look. Names like, like Lilly has just been a monster. Um, and that's something that I think you can play a little bit of relative value in here, because I think at some point uh, it is getting crowded. And I think there are folks in here who have spent a lot of time here, but I don't think people are running out of here. And UNH is, is again, just a monster, and I, I stay there. Here's a would you rather rather, which we haven't done in quite some time, and I'll do this by sector. Hmm. Uh, Jeff Mills, you had mentioned that you have to be long. So I'll, I'll ask you the top three performing sectors today, utilities, staples, or healthcare, which is your defensive pick? So mine probably would be healthcare. Uh, I would think if you were really worried about a recession, then you would want to be in utilities. I actually ran some numbers really quickly before the show, but if you look at performance between yield curve inversion and recession, 
Uh, healthcare is not your best sector. Utilities is usually up about 25% versus the S&P, which is up about seven. But then you have healthcare somewhere in the middle, usually up about 13%. So I like playing that sort of middle ground defensive area here because I've been, ba- I've been beating that economic slowdown drum. I'll probably continue to do that, but I don't think we're going to go into some severe crisis sort of recession. And, and healthcare acts really well. It, it bounced off of that 125, if you look at the XLV, uh, three times. Now we're on sort of breakout watch around 140. So um, I think if you're just playing the entire sector, even an ETF like that is, is interesting at this point. Steve, same question to you. Yeah, I, I would go with utilities for all the reasons that Jeff just said, because I do believe that there will be a recession. I think it's a Fed-induced recession. I don't think there's going to be a soft landing. They have to induce a recession to stop inflation. Uh, that's their path. That's their mandate. Having said that, if I was buying healthcare, I'd stay in a name that Karen just mentioned, AbbVie. It's outperformed on a three-month basis all the rest of the group by five to one. And if you compare it to Pfizer, even, even more than that, because Pfizer's negative, AbbVie's up 24% in a three-month period. Everyone was worried about the patents coming off on Umera next year, but now they've sort of gotten numb to that fact and they've broadened their base of, of drugs. AbbVie is probably where I would stay, although I'd wait for a slight pullback. All right, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Consumer concern. Are the charts pointing to trouble? The traders break down the names that worry them most. Plus, puff, puff, pop. Tilray surging on the back of earnings. So will the smoke keep rising? The traders are lighting up this trade ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to Fast Money. Consumer stocks, the worst performers in the S&P today. The discretionary sector down more than 2.5%. Take a look at some of the biggest laggards over the last week. Tapestry, Under Armour, Best Buy, Starbucks, all down sharply. Are these move signs of cracks in the consumer? Karen, you follow the sector pretty closely. Should we be worried about the consumer? I mean, the consumer is certainly under pressure, right, with rates rising and uh, with um, commodities rising. Everything's more expensive. But I think the reaction to it's not like these were super frothy stocks to begin with. So one that wasn't on that list that I do own, and I know Steve does as well, is Capri. And it's, to me, getting to be a you know, ridiculous multiple at eight, nine. I'm not exactly sure where it closed. But um, I, I'm still OK with the consumer and betting on the consumer. 
Yeah. Bank of America had this really interesting note out today on the consumer, uh, Jeff, and basically said that household savings are about two times what they were pre-pandemic levels for both the high end as well as the low end household. So everybody's in better shape. Does that necessarily mean that you want to start spending that savings stockpile on, you know, I don't know, new yoga pants or whatnot? (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think that's exactly right. And it's part of the reason that I just said, I don't think growth is going to all of a sudden fall off a cliff. And even if we do get a recession, you know, maybe it ends up being a mild one because we do have that familiar story in the background. The labor market is strong. There's the excess savings. There's capacity for the consumer to borrow. So I think all of those things serve as at least some fundamental uh, support. But I think if you're talking about acute pressure on consumer spending, I sent in a chart. It's more of a macro chart, but it's falling real income. So inflation has been outpacing wage growth. Um, So that's going to be problematic for spending, at least in the very near term. And then you have other things related to interest rates. So for example, it's, it's harder to monetize the sale of an appreciated house right now. You know, you sell expensive, buy expensive, but mortgage rates are now a lot higher. So your payment is much higher. So in terms of buying things to furnish the house and other things associated with that purchase, you're just going to see additional pressure, not to mention some of the demand pull for that we've seen. So if you look in consumer discretionary, for example, it's been the Amazons and, and Teslas of the world and even the, the service oriented names like casinos and Alive Nation that have outperformed. Uh, so I, I think that's what's going to continue to actually do well as we see some of these issues with, with good spending in particular. I mean, if you look under the hood to Jeff's point, I mean, this is sort of the point that Karen was making about the tech sector. And you take a look at pockets of tech, and they've really gotten beaten down. And then you've got the mega cap techs, which have been holding up, Steve. And this is the same thing with discretionary in terms of those large names holding up a sector. When you look under the hood, there are some smaller names that are just doing awfully Yeah, and I think it's important to look for the higher end. I think it's important to be in a Capri or to be in an LVMH. I don't think all buyers are equal, but I think all buyers have money to your point. So when you see it sell off like a PVH or a Capri, it's been abysmal, the performance. And I think the average retail investor and institutional investor has that knee-jerk reaction where you say, recession, sell all discretionary spending. And I don't think that goes in one bucket. I think you have to look at your autos, your housing, but not your retailers. I think those are a little more safer. All right. Uh, By the way, an update on a stock we've been following all week. Walmart quietly closing at an all-time high today. Shares are more than... 2%. 2%. Tim, is this the kind of retailer you want to be in in this environment? Well, you, you do because Karen brought up their ability to, to, to you know, extract the most kind of value out of, out of uh, both the consumer and push prices through. And I, I would say they also have the best ability to push around their suppliers right now. Uh, this is also a company that, as we get into just the charts and performance, has really underperformed it, its peers. So the valuation relative to itself looks pretty interesting. I, I just think in, in the, the secular trend that we talk so much about with e-commerce, Walmart does not get enough of an e-commerce multiple. Uh, And if you look at some of those e-commerce names that have been destroyed, uh, I think this highlights why Walmart's particularly valuable here. Coming up, metal on our minds. President Biden's push for EV development, putting lithium in focus. The CEO of a company mining the metal joins us to lay out the future for lithium. Plus, Mary Jane Jump shares of Tilray getting a boost on the back of its earnings report. Details on the pot profit. Next, do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. 
We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out pot stock Tilray lighting up on the back of a monster earnings report. The company posting a surprise profit this quarter, announcing a distribution deal for their hemp products with Amazon's Whole Foods. Tilray also reiterating its plan to hit $4 billion in revenue by 2024. That compares to the roughly $650 million analysts were projecting for this year. So... Tim, what did you make of these numbers? I, I thought the numbers were as expected, especially in terms of the top line and the profitability. And, and I, I'll say this about Tilray. They continue to be one of the most profitable companies in cannabis, and, and at least from an adjusted EBITDA perspective. That asterisk we know because some of the tax issues on the sector. Um, I, I think this, this Whole Foods deal is very important. Again, their they're Manitoba, Manitoba Harvest brand to be in these stores. Um, this is the distribution. This is where uh, I think Irwin Simon shines. And I think you know people have not given enough credit for also acting acquisitions in the spirits uh, and, and the beer industries that are accretive and balance sheet accretive and that their European business is truly also well ahead of the competitor. So people like to point out that the Canadian market is not the U.S. market. I agree. Uh, they have some at least derivative exposure to the U.S. that could happen. And I think the legislation in the U.S. is not a question of, of, of you know, if. It's certainly when. And I think this company is very well positioned. But again, everybody talks about having a brand in the space. And if there's a company that's going to have a brand, I, I think Tilray and Erwin Simon and we'll have them there. Yep. From pot stocks to fintech, check out shares of PayPal dropping more than 4% today and on pace for its worst two-day run since early February. And options traders are betting on more pain ahead. Tony joins us now with the action. Tony, what are you seeing? Yeah, today PayPal and all of these payment stocks had a pretty rough day. And one trader made a fairly simple but very aggressive bearish bet here on PayPal, buying over 1,500 contracts of the June 92 and a half puts for an average price of about $3.25. And just to put that into context, this trader laid out more than half a million dollars in premium to buy these fairly out of the money put options, the 92 and a half strike prices. The break even on these required the stock to decline more than 20% by the June expiration just to break even. So this trader actually believes that you could see some significant moves here over the next three months or so. Yeah, but Karen, what do you make of this giant move lower for PayPal? Well, I think it's more indicative of the high-flying, right, high multiples. Even though PayPal has come in a lot, it's still not what you would consider cheap. I mean, Square also in a lot, SoFi down as well, and the banks down, even though they're much less, the PEs are much lower, but still, direction's down. That's okay. Tony Zhang, thank you for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, big bank earnings on deck, and the general's got a chart. He says could tell the real story for the sector. But first, heavy metal, lithium production, and sharp focus in D.C. We'll be joined by the CEO of Lithium Americas to break down what it means for the company. The interview is next. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Lithium Americas dropping nearly 15% in the last two days. The moves as Senator Manchin pushed back in the administration's ambitious EV plan. The stock, though, has more than doubled over the past year. Let's bring back Lithium Americas CEO Jonathan Evans. John, great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks. Thank you. I, I want to ask you about lithium overall, the prices that we've seen with so many metals just skyrocketing, skyrocketing across the board, um, particularly after the Ukraine invasion. And so I'm wondering, uh, with the administration's move to invoke DPA, Defense Production Act, you know, when you heard that happen, did you think my timeline for producing lithium in America um, has actually moved up? Has it changed anything in terms of your timeline? 
Uh, for our particular company, we're still on path. Uh, really the same, the plans we had before was to get into production as soon as possible, at least construction in the United States, which we're targeting the second half of this year. I think DPA really kind of crystallizes the government's concerns around uh, lithium and a, and a host of other critical minerals, uh, making it a national and economic security issue. That, in addition to the administration's moves with uh, the loan program office, in addition to about $7 billion of supply chain grants, it really has, has come together as a very comprehensive strategy. Uh, really, if you look at it compared to other countries in the world, it's more comprehensive than, than what we've seen in recent history around an issue that like this, which is really really taken to fore with the invasion of the Ukraine now and, and uh, the, the supply chain and deglobalization, which is going on right now, given the shortages. I'm wondering how you how you view um, the administration's focus now on this issue. Is it is it a positive uh, in that, you know, perhaps there will even be a strategic reserve of of important metals like this for the United States? Or could it potentially be a negative in that uh, the United States may, might take a, a more active role in where you export the metal if you're going to export it, for instance? I think it's a positive move. Uh, there's still a lot of details on DPA that we need to to understand. There is potentially additional funding that could come with this, but it's more a signal than anything else. I think at this point where the government would like private, the private sector to step up and move quicker, uh, given the growth that we've seen in, in electric vehicles and electric vehicle adoption and the national economic security issues that I think are, are a big worry, not only for the administration, but, but for Americans in general, given the challenges that we're seeing. Jonathan, it's Tim. Can, can you just give us some of your framework on where we or where you see um, lithium prices, carbonate, hydroxide, as we get out in the next one or two years? Um, and maybe just really quickly, though, how about inflation on you and your CapEx? I mean, it's, it's probably gotten a lot more expensive to do what you do. Yeah, so two parts on that. The pricing obviously has come up quite a bit, and there's a big focus around spot pricing. That's moderated a little bit. Uh, I, I think if you want to get a view on pricing, start looking at some of the public company filings in this space where you're seeing pricing now in the twenty to thirty-five thousand dollar range, which is significantly increased over the last over the last two years, that's for sure, but very helpful and that helps to address the problem that we just talked about, but getting capital uh, deployed to uh, start building these facilities for, for the supply chains that are already well ahead of us in some cases with, with investments that have been committed by OEMs. Uh, I think the second piece. Yes, I mean, that plays into it as well, where uh, CapEx uh, inflation across the board, not only projects that are, are underway, but also ones that are being contemplated, are going to be more expensive for as long as, as we think this inflationary environment is going to continue, which I think at this point, uh, it, there, there's no end in sight, at least in the short term, uh, and it is going to push up development costs. Pricing is going to help support that, though, now where there should be a lot of people that are very interested now in getting involved in this industry, just given... Uh, it, it's, it's sold out at this point and will be for the next several years. So, Jonathan, when I look at your stock, I, I look at a stock that was at $40, $42 or, or somewhere thereabouts back in November, traded down at $24 or thereabouts, and now it's back up again. So Melissa touched on this a little bit. What is the biggest contributory factor? Is it politics right now? What, what are we looking at for the retail investor or the institutional investor that's buying your stock tomorrow and doesn't have the stomach for that move, what, what should they look at as the tell on your name? For us, I think it's real focus on execution this year. So we have two main focuses right now in Argentina to get that project completed and in construction by the end of the year. And there's a lot of excitement around the Thacker Pass asset 
just given the, the movement that we've made there and our plans to get that started later in the year, those will be catalysts along with some of the collaboration we're doing with, with like the Department of Energy and the loan program office and some of the other grants that are out there. I think those are all gonna be catalysts and that we're the largest and most advanced project, at least in the United States at this point. Uh, and it's one of the largest deposits in the world. I think our stock has done well in comparison to other lithium companies that are either in production or the EV stocks in general. I think we're up about six or 7% year to date. Uh, given I use kind of Tesla as a proxy, they're they're down, uh, I believe, year to date. And I think that shows that our, or at least our shareholders and, and the market in general uh, with a big belief in what we're doing and the potential for growth in the future, you know, given what, we're, what we have in terms of an asset base. Um, in, in terms of the Thacker Pass uh, spinoff or separation from Lithium Americas, Jonathan, is that on track? Should investors be looking for that? And, and what does that give you? Does that give you more capital specifically for Thacker Pass in Nevada? Uh, so that's something we're still exploring at this stage. We've intimated that we've started those discussions to see what that what that would look like. When you look at our our asset base, uh, when you look at Argentina or Latin America versus the United States, uh, the 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 routes to financing and the market dynamics and challenges are much different in Latin America versus the U.S. Uh, this potentially allows a way to unlock more shareholder value by uh, having more management focus uh, in each one of the reasons that it's very very specific to the challenges that those have. Uh, versus potentially having uh, capital allocation misalignment uh, at the top level with potential strategic partners that we're talking to in the U.S. There's a huge move now in North America by OEMs and uh, other folks in the supply chain for, for direct interaction with, uh, with lithium suppliers and or uh, I would say supply chain uh, in general to make sure that uh, there's, there's going to be stable supply. Uh, and I think there's a, a large part of the investment community which, which really likes that, that uh, uh, that approach versus mm -hmm. perhaps maybe a global one, which has more risk in, in other markets, which have just different fundamentals. Right. Jonathan, great to see you. Thank you. Hope you'll come back. Jonathan Evans of Lithium Americas. Um, Jeff Mills, there aren't too many pure play ways. I mean, one of the other you know publicly traded stocks, for instance, is Albemarle, but that's a small part of its business. Um, so would you go with an LAC type of stock, which has not, by the way, produced an ounce of lithium yes. from its mines yet? So I think they do have a geographic advantage, for example, against a ALB, no Chile exposure, uh, no China exposure. So I, I like it. They have a massive amount of revenues tied to potential production. It's just a matter of whether they can get that production out of the ground. But for an investor, just know this stock could easily fall 25 percent to that October breakout level. So just beware, size it appropriately. Coming up, the traders are gearing up for big bank earnings. We've got the one chart that tells the true story for the group. That is next when Fast Money comes back in two. Big banks feeling the blues. Check out Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, both trading at new 52-week lows today. This comes as earnings season kicks off next week. We'll hear from JPM, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, and many more. So what should investors expect? Jeff, you've got a chart that tells the true story, you say, on the financials. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this one's really interesting, actually. So uh, if you look at the relationship between banks and interest rates, banks usually outperform when interest rates rise, sort of intuitive. But what we've seen lately is exactly the opposite. You've seen interest rates continue to rise and banks' relative performance, like you said, has just fallen off of a cliff. So what does that mean? I think, one, maybe it means we're close to a peak in rates. I know people kind of look at me sideways when I say that, but I think it could be true. Uh, but I also think maybe it means that there's a low bar 
heading into earnings. But all of this reminds me of 2018 when yields were up throughout the year, banks lagged, utilities led, uh, and growth peaked, and then the Fed cut rates. So it's not necessarily the best setup for a Fed that's obviously resolute in, in tightening from here. So I think it's, it's something worth paying attention to, not only relative to bank earnings, but in terms of the macro picture also. So which bank is the most important to watch? Uh, Karen, you shocked me. You said something hmm. other than J.P. Morgan. Oh, well, oh. OK, I, I certainly own J.P. Morgan. I own. Um, but the one I, that I'm most interested in for this coming quarter is Bank of America. I totally agree with Jeff. The bar is getting lower and lower. We have had this. There seems to be this thought that the two year, 10 year spread really is indicative of how bank earnings will do. And that's just not true. And in fact, if you look in their 10 Ks, they tell you, how are we going to do if rates move this way or that way? So you look in Bank America's 10K and it says if rates, the front end flatten, the front end goes up, curve flattens, the short end, they'll make $4.9 billion extra net interest income. The long end, they'll lose 735 net net, $4.25 billion of extra. Not only is it not hurt, it helps. So I think that the bar is lower. That's good. I think that net interest income will be better than people fear. J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, they have more exposure to the deal-making business, which versus last year at this time is, it's not bad, but versus last year, that was ridiculously hot. So Bank of America is also the most U.S.-centric. I like it for that reason as well. We won't see any European contagion there. And the valuation. And so, you know, at 12 times earnings, it's right. not like it's super frothy. So, so maybe the city and Goldman charts from today, Tim, really tell you that the concern there is all, all these things but also the little risk of European contagion from Russia, Ukraine. Cities been trading like there's contagion even before Russia, Ukraine. <laughs> and, 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 you know, city um, still, I think, has to prove that it needs to belong in the quality camp of Bank of America. Uh, and J.P. Morgan still sits on top. I, you know, part of my call here on Bank of America, that would be my chart, too, just because I, I think it's the best tell. I think it's middle of the road. I think it, money center bank sensitivity. I think they have the capital markets business. I think actually you're going to see banking and capital markets have been been very resilient in Q1. I think it's difficult to guide on Q2, um, but I think these banks look very interesting. Remember, their balance sheets are as good as they've ever been, and they're, they're paying back dibs and they want to pay you more. Um, I think you can ride through this. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Steve Grasso. So for the same reason why Tilray eventually jumped, there's going to be that legislative tailwind to it. I think Kronos is going to be the next one to jump. All these stocks have been decimated, and I think they're all due for a pop, but a continued pop. Kronos. General Mills. So XTN, it's transport ETF. I think generally speaking, the transports look weak here. They probably should look weak, given my outlook on the economy. So I'd be lightening up here. Tim? The reasons we've been talking about the Fed being out of control and missing is the reason you want to own gold. Also, reasons why U.S. can throw sanctions on you at any time. That's the reason to own gold, too. Karen. Yeah, talking about the consumer getting hit, I think the Capri hit to the stock price anyway is overdone. It's cheap here at eight times. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 